Hey, what's up everybody? I'm Michael Woods, founder of Inclusive Sport Design. Welcome to the ISD podcast where we talk all things inclusion in sport with amazing guests who are out there making inclusion happen. So you can learn and be inspired to make inclusion happen in your club or sport organization too. We are, as usual, recording on beautiful Gundangara country. I'd like to acknowledge and thank the Gundangara people and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I also pay my respects to more, more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and all other Indigenous and First Nations peoples who might be watching or listening in with us today. Now, if you are new to the podcast or you're new to inclusive sport design, then I highly recommend you check out our episode zero, which is our introduction episode for this podcast. You can learn more about who I am, what inclusive sport design is all about and kind of what we hope to achieve with the ISD podcast. So I'll pop a link in the show notes for you to check that out. Now today, this is episode number four, and I'm with Andrea Kerry to learn how she's making inclusion in sport happen across Canada for people with disabilities. Now, Andrea Kerry is a highly credentialed Canadian inclusion practitioner who works to support clients and partners to create cultures of belonging and inclusion. She has worked extensively on inclusion and improved access for Indigenous peoples, new arrivals, persons with disabilities, as well as women and girls. Andrea has even been a special advisor on disability inclusion to Canadian, sorry, let me say that again, to Canadian Federal Minister Carla Qualtro. But in her day job, Andrea runs Inclusion Incorporated, which is a diversity, equity, inclusion consulting firm that works with clients across Canada. Andrea is also the co-founder and current executive director of OneAbility, a nonprofit dedicated to providing sport opportunities for people with disabilities of all ages. She's also co-chair of the Canadian National Para Collective, which is an initiative that Andrea co-founded in 2020. And Andrea's also spent 10 years with the Canadian Paralympic Committee as board director and chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee, and currently sits on the board of Kids Sport Victoria. Absolutely busy person with a wealth of knowledge and experience and certainly is an inclusion leader. So I'm really looking forward to this chat today. Let's get into it. Andrea Kerry. Welcome to the Inclusive Sport Design Podcast. Thanks, Michael. So excited to be here and to yeah have a little bit of an opportunity for a discussion with you. Oh, absolutely. We, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. You've got so many amazing things going on and, and so I can't wait to get into it. But I want to just ask, what First Nations people's land do you, do you live on and work on? Yeah, thanks for that. So I am really grateful to be an uninvited settler on Coast Salish, Coast Salish Territory in Victoria which is home of the Esquimalt Songhees and Wasanish Nations. And I've lived here for about 27 years and really didn't appreciate when I first moved here what these territories meant and have been building my understanding more deeply over the last several years and also had the opportunity to go back to where I was born and spend some time with the Tanaha peoples learning about their traditional games and their way of life just down the road from where I grew up and on some beautiful territories there too. So. Digging deep into my learning journeys to make sure that I appreciate, recognize, and celebrate Indigenous peoples across Canada. Absolutely well said. And to any listeners at home who who maybe haven't engaged in, in I guess, the histories and origins of the peoples of the land that they are on, particularly in Australia and Canada, we have a similar history in, in that regard. So take the time, educate yourselves, connect with those communities and, and uh, yeah, learn. 
learn, learn, learn. It's really important for us to do. So let's jump straight into it. Angie, I'm, I'm super keen to know, you know, how you got involved in disability and, and Paralympic sport, you know, how did that all come about for you? Yeah, I'm going to say I had a couple of pathways into it. Primarily, I had the opportunity to be the first staff and kind of founding creator of our Canada's first summer sport institute. And so I was hired into that role to really look at what programming looked like, how we would actually operate a sport institute. I know Australia has a bit of a deeper history in sport institutes than Canada does, but yeah. we, uh, we were just figuring it out. And we opened that facility in August 2008. Um, it was a multi-partner initiative and it was a facility that was built by sport architects with sport in mind, sport and physical mm -hmm. activity of all types in mind. And it was so fascinating because we came into a facility that really didn't have a, a thoughtful business plan, I would say. And we were trying to figure out how we were going to actually get the doors open and the lights on every day. Mm -hmm. And we had this beautiful facility nestled kind of just outside of town and on a campus of a college and all this incredible potential. And our first rental group was the National Wheelchair Rugby Team. And so we barely knew how to operate the facility. And then we were trying to figure out what the National Wheelchair Rugby Team would need in order for this to be a successful training camp. And then we layered on the fact that the facility actually wasn't designed to be very accessible. And so we had things like the architects telling us that, you know, it was built to code and yet code didn't recognize that sport wheelchairs have a wider wheelbase than day chairs. Yeah. And so here we've got national team athletes preparing for international competition that can't get through the doorways. And the architects didn't know that was a thing. And so I just got really frustrated by that and felt like we needed to have bigger conversations and make bigger change. And so we gave those architects a lot of really robust feedback about what that was with the hope that they would design better and smarter going forward, but also wanted to contribute on a larger basis. And so I had some really incredible colleagues that were like, if you want to make change, you should run for board. And I was like, okay, board do I run? And they're like, the Paralympic Committee. And I was like, why not? <laughs> And yeah. I was like, I really know anything about Parasport or Paralympics. And they were like, that's okay. You're enthusiastic and you'll figure it out. So yeah. nominated me and membership voted me in and voted me in several more times after that to kind of make up a 10-year stint that I served on that board. And I learned so much about Parasport. I was so welcomed into that community and people were so supportive around sharing and recognizing that I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was pretty humble about that, but I, it gave me an incredible base to then build my involvement in that community and to take that to different levels in terms of being able to contribute locally and being able to contribute provincially and nationally. And I'm so incredibly grateful for everyone along that pathway that has done the work and has built such an incredible system, but also that supported me in my learning journey to be able to contribute back in other ways. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. It's such an interesting kind of, yeah, journey into the world of disability and Paralympic sport. And I think, you know, credit to you all those years ago for acknowledging and recognizing that things weren't good enough in, in, in that facility and they weren't, they weren't appropriate and, and poss possibly lucky that the wheelchair rugby team was the first, you know, user group that came in to help, help inform that. But I guess it just speaks to the, the importance of making sure people with disability are involved in the design 
and implementation of, of, of facilities and programs and, and things right from the get-go, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we absolutely have to be including who we want to serve in whatever ways in the design, in the imagination, in the creation of what we want to put out in the world. Otherwise, we're never going to get it right. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's jump in and have a chat about one ability. We mentioned this up at the, the start of the, the intro. Tell us what is one ability and how does it work? What's it all about? Yeah, so one ability is a collective impact approach that we began about eight years ago. It came out of a project. We actually, funny story, had the same architects build another sport facility in Getting those government contracts. <laughs> What? They didn't really learn a lot of the lesson, despite the disability community being a little bit more organized and sort of saying like, hey, how can we inform this? Like we saw what didn't go well. Mm-hmm. How can we make sure that you learn? That didn't really happen. However, we then had an opportunity as that facility was getting finished to create some opportunities around disability programming. And as we were doing that, we started to have conversations with the disability community and those that were offering sport and physical activity for folks with disability in our community. And we recognized that, you know, all of them were doing really awesome things, but none of them really knew about each other. And so I was sort of this, like, I'm going to say a little bit of a lone human that had worked with most of them, but they hadn't worked with each other. And often didn't really even know each other existed or didn't understand what the services and programs were that each other were offering. And sort of came with this like little bit of a competitive piece about like, oh, well, you can't offer that there because we're offering it over here. If you do mm-hmm. that, it's going to come to this one. It was like, or more people could play the sport. Like, wouldn't that be cool? And so it was really just, it started just bringing people to the table and getting them around the, the table, having a conversation to learn what each other were doing. Mm-hmm. And we started with about eight organizations. It quickly grew to about 40 organizations. And so we we were like running out yeah. of space at these meetings because we had all these people showing up that were super interested in what yeah, was well. happening across their community. And so we really started to think about, okay, well, what would a governance structure look like? What, is this, what does this look like to create a more sustainable model to continue to do this beyond sort of this one project and facility opening? And so we took a collective impact approach because we didn't want to create another organization that was going to be seen as a competitor when we were already navigating that. And so essentially it was kind of one ability collective impact for a few years. And we very quickly saw as people started to have conversations and learn about each other, that they jumped into doing some programming together. They were figuring out how they could share resources. They were supporting each other training. So we had all these kind of early wins where people appreciated very quickly how important this was. And then we had unbelievable support from the Victoria Foundation, which is our local community foundation, because they believed in, one, they believed in collective impacts and how important that was for community. But two, they believed in the opportunity for folks with disabilities to have more better sport, physical activity opportunities across our community. So they've continued to support us over almost eight years and we've evolved. We've over the last year, we actually became a charity. So we became an entity, but still really operate like collective, but legally and for governance reasons really had to do that in order to sustain the work going forward. So that's kind of a little bit of a snapshot 
Winability is, and we're just a hub, really, to bring folks together in the community. So I'm I'm a I'm a massive advocate of collective impact approaches to to the work, particularly in the work in this space. But but you know, in terms of social impact work, I think it's a really great way to initiate action and to sustain action. So, but some of our listeners might not really have heard of that phrase before. They're not sure what what collective impact kind of means. Can you just give us a really brief kind of top line? explainer on that. And in fact, just what I'll do is we've got some information and, and resources about collective impact on the ISD website, and I'll pop some links for people to check that out. But just, just from your perspective, you know, what's collective impact and how's it work in, in your case? Yeah. So collective impact is really organizations that have some sort of similar interest coming together to work together on something. And that can have a whole range of topics, but essentially it's having a shared vision. And in this case in Victoria, the shared vision was that there would be greater access and more programming opportunities for folks with disabilities in sport and physical activity across our region. And so that's really kind of what we, I'll say, kind of huddled and collected around. Yeah. And, you know, we looked at some of the aspect, other aspects of collective impact. We had backbone organizations of many shapes and sizes over several years until we became a charity. We've looked at some shared evaluation tools, which we've undertaken together. We, yeah, so there's kind of, I think there's five areas around collective impact. We didn't do all of those. We were a bit mm-hmm. of a hybrid, I'll call it, but mm-hmm. we did what worked for us to really yeah. get the show off the ground. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. And yeah, if anyone is interested in learning more about collective impact as an approach to to get stuff done, check out the links in the show notes and, and stuff on the ISD website. It's a super, super useful start point if you're looking to move forward on something. So I'm keen, you know, thinking about this, this approach and this, this coming together, all these previously kind of disparate and disconnected, but ultimately trying to do the same thing, organizations. What's, what's like the, what are the benefits of building that network and having people all kind of band together for the same objectives and and work to the same frameworks? What's the benefits of that? I think there's a few. I mean, I think we work in a sector that is, to your point, to use your word, sort of disparate in some of the things that they do. And I also think we often kind of structure it and our funding structures it to be a bit of a scarcity industry. And I think when you look at a collective, it creates and shapeshifts that to an abundance industry and thinking about how each organization has such incredible value and assets that they're bringing to the table. And a collective is an opportunity to look at how those assets can support the other organizations and actually can solve some of your scarcity issues. And so in our case, you know, when organizations came together, they were more successful in applying for program funding, as an example. We were more successful in launching new programs. We were more successful in supporting training across the region and for the leaders that were seeking that. So it's like, how do you really kind of think about what that problem is you're trying to solve and who in that group of organizations has solutions or opportunities that you can really bring together to share. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. And I think, uh, you know, that, that idea of partnering up and, and collaborative work, working and, and teaming up for, for funding pitches and those sorts of things is, is certainly central to the way I like to, to work with organizations. And, you know, we're starting to see, I, I think, a bit of a shift 
in that thinking as well, because I think people are sick of going up against like organizations to deliver like outcomes for the same people. And one gets the $10,000 grant and the other gets nothing and can't actually make an impact. And so coming together can solve some of that. Absolutely. And we're seeing it over here. I mean, the, the national disability sport organizations over here have all just banded together to create this sort of larger peak entity, which is kind of gonna, I, I, as I understand it, be kind of like an advocacy and funding kind of centralized body, but then each individual organization will still deliver on their remits because they're kind of representing different cohorts within the disability support sector, right? But collectively, they're able to do things that benefit the whole sector and benefit the whole community in all pathways. And they can work with more sports in mainstream settings and things like that. And it just makes sense. And, and the funding lines become a little simpler, right? Well, and that's kind of the premise behind the National Parasport Collective as well, which mm. is true. And that was really like, when I was on the board of the Canadian Paralympic Committee, we, I had all these people coming to me on a regular basis saying like, oh, I heard so-and-so is doing something really cool in one province. And how do we, like, I don't know who that is or what they're doing. And sport organizations would say, I don't really know, know what the provinces are doing. And so it's just mm. an opportunity to just bring, again, bring people together, have a conversation. I think one of the things our world needs a lot more of is communication and yeah. tables are really like an opportunity to just communicate with each other and get to know each other and learn each other's perspectives. When we think about, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's like we've struggled because we don't understand the perspectives and kind of what people are doing and how they're doing it. And so collectives just are a really yeah. powerful way to bring folks together. And the National Parasport Collective is now two and a half years old. We have no funding. We've done some really cool projects. The highlight is that we get together once a month and have conversation and whoever wants to be there is there. And each time that's like these rich connection points and learnings and it's an opportunity. No, absolutely. And I think sometimes people make this assumption that in order to act take action on inclusion or to implement some change, they need big dollars behind them so that, you know, you can hire staff or you can deliver equipment or do capital works or, you know, whatever it is. But sometimes it's really just putting people in the same room and empowering them with the existing resources to do it better. And, and you get changed that way, right? We have so many resources and yeah. like, I know I absolutely do this. It's like, oh, we should create X. And then it's like, you know, two months later, someone will be like, oh, we did X five years ago. It's like, oh, I think. And so yeah. that's yeah. as well as like, how do we just learn what else is out there and actually share and use it well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm starting to see this, this, you know, show my age, been around this game a little while, but starting to see the same organizations doing things they did years ago, but pitching it as something new. And it's like, hold on, you tried this four, five, six, 10 years ago and it worked then, but you didn't keep going and you're going to try and do it again now because you think it's going to work again. It's like, well. Where's the, where's the con continuity of, 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 of work and knowledge there it sort of goes in these ebbs and flows, which, you know, is part of the reason why I set up inclusive sport design was to try and circumvent some of that knowledge loss and sort of keep some continuity and, and influence going between, you know, funding cycles or, whatever, or what have you. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing all of that. I'm kind of interested in, in breaking down some of the hows of how one ability in particular, but also the, the para collective, how these things kind of work functionally so that, so that people who might be listening thinking about doing similar work or are doing similar work can, can get some insights from that. So key, key to this is obviously the, the target market that you're 
working with, which is working for, which is people with disabilities. So how do you go about building those connections, whether it's with the individuals themselves or with the organizations that represent them? And how do you kind of build the understanding of what their needs and wants are in that process? That's a good question. And I think, you know, we have to kind of keep at the forefront in all of this work that's term nothing about us without us and be really intentional about ensuring that we have voices at the table with lived experience all the time. And this is kind of an imperative in Inclusion Incorporated, which is the consulting company that I run. We have a team of highly diverse humans that are part, that are contributing to our different projects and ensuring that we bring those voices into the different conversations. And on one ability side, we have board members that are from the disability community. We have board members that have run disability organizations for a long time or created programming. We also have kind of different levels of memberships. We have a governance membership and then all of our kind of network members who are part of the actual collective. And in each of those, we have many folks with disabilities that are informing the work and co-creating the work. And I think that's kind of the key piece was like, it's this even a tokenization exercise. Yeah. So like, how do we create meaningful change exercise? And so it's, how do we get those voices at the table? How do we give them space? to share how do we co-create the ways forward i think that co-creation piece is so important because it's not something that is done particularly well i think it's still an area of evolution for organizations particularly in sport to understand what that really means and i think it takes you from you know delivering to a particular audience to actually delivering with them and and that's a real that there's a difference you know there's a very big difference and and in the kind of diversity, equity, inclusion space, there is now this broader conversation about, well, you know, what's beyond inclusion? Well, beyond inclusion is true belonging. And, and I think co-creation and co-design and, and involving people from the, from the ground up is, is what actually creates genuine belonging as opposed to kind of probably, you know, version one of what inclusion is, which is kind of like bringing people into an existing space. Whereas what we want to do is create spaces and opportunities with the people that want to be there and do it in a way that works for them based on their needs and not something that we assume that they want or force them to conform to something that already exists, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think we have, I'll call it a little idiom that we follow, which is that it's, you know, we move from doing for to doing with, to the community doing by. So they're doing it essentially for themselves. So it's like, how do you kind of move along that continuum to create more and more meaningful spaces for the audience that you're ultimately trying to work with to be involved and contributing building leadership capacity yeah absolutely absolutely and so in in that in that sort of journey and through those experiences of connecting with with people with disability and and bringing them into this co-creation kind of process within the networks that you're in is there anything that you've kind of learned, discovered, experienced that kind of surprised you or, or kind of pushed your prior expectations or, or knowledge about what you thought you knew kind of thing? Is there anything that, that has sort of shifted your thinking, I guess? I think, I mean, I think my shifting, my thinking shifts on us daily. I feel super grateful to be working with folks that challenge me on a daily basis, mm. that step into these spaces, that use their voices. But we're so intentional about creating those spaces as well. And to your point about belonging, like I want our team at Inclusion Incorporated 
our members at OneAbility to feel like they belong part of this because then they will feel safe and welcomed and included to, to contribute in ways that be supportive for all of us to meet. And I don't think that a lot of our world is set up that way. It's, you know, we existed in systems of exclusion that were built for certain populations by certain populations for a really long time. And it's not about tacking onto those systems. We actually have to break those systems and structures down, understand what's broken in them, understand what those barriers are, and then to co-create something different to move forward. I had the opportunity to work with Mr. Qualtrough to go to the state party on disability. And one of her quotes in her talk there was that we talk about systems and structures being broken, but they are functioning exactly as they were designed. Mm -hmm. They just weren't designed for all of us. And that was just such a powerful kind of moment for me to be reflecting on, you know, here's a person who grew up literally in our disability system has moved into, you know, this position of being in charge basically of our entire federal legislation around disability. And she's standing in the space being like, I'm fighting this every single day because it wasn't yeah. built for her, let alone for most of us. So, and I don't know that any of our systems and structures are serving anyone anymore. Like yeah. they were talk about majorities, but majorities actually don't exist. The minority is actually the majority. And that's a quote from an incredible human named Christine Sue in Toronto, who I just got to meet for the first time in Tarson last week. And it's like, the minority is the majority. How are we going to shift how we do things to really respect that each person needs a space created for what they need? Yeah, that, you know, that, that's so true. And I think put it into the Australian context and I, I, I'm not sure of the demographics in Canada, but it may be heading in the same sort of a direction. But we, we often think about migrants and refugees and people from diverse cultural backgrounds as being minority groups within the community, right? And in one sense, they are, if you break them out separately and think about each individual group. But in Australia, our last census just told us that almost, well, just a tick over 50% of our population is either born overseas or as a parent born overseas, which means that half the country, which is, well, a majority of the country and, and not necessarily what we would consider to be the cultural majority. It's a mix of a whole bunch of diverse, rich ethnicities, religions, cultural perspectives, languages, you know, there's all these things, right? And if we don't acknowledge that and we don't think about our systems and practices as catering for that, then, you know, what an opportunity we're missing and, and, and what a negative impact are we having on, on those people where the systems aren't serving them. And I think about the work we just did a couple of years ago with, with Swimming Australia, where in swimming, it's a traditional sport. There are very strict technical rules about what you wear when you race in swimming, and they are set by the International Federation. So it's either this type of swimwear for boys or this type of swimwear for girls. And if you didn't fit within the bounds of those technical specifications for swimwear, you were kind of excluded from competition. So if you had a, a modesty requirement due to a religious background or need, or if you had a, you, if you needed some kind of modification to your swimwear to cater for menstruation, if it wasn't in the technical rules, it wasn't possible. And so we had to change the system to cater for that. So now they have a new competitive swimwear policy, which allows for a whole range of things that cater for culture, ethnicity, gender identity, disability. That means you can essentially wear swimwear that works for you when you race instead of what elite swimmers wear in the Olympic games. 
And that was a massive shift, a huge shift in the sport because no one had done it before. And people were struggling to fit into the system because they weren't able to wear full coverage swimsuits when they raced, for example. And, and, and it's those shifts and those changes that we've got to have a look at across the whole sports system and, and make those changes, just like wider doors for sports wheelchairs in facilities. Well, and when you look at each of these things, like they actually make them better for everyone, right? Like. Absolutely. I don't want to wear the swimsuit that the person that's, you know, 19 and is weighs <laughs> less than I do, you know, wear. Like that just doesn't make me feel comfortable. And it's riding mm. halfway on my butt. And like, oh, there's a whole bunch of things, right? And so it's like, if I get to pick what I'm going to be comfortable in, I'm going to want to keep showing up. And mm-hmm. the things we haven't really thought about. And when we think about accessibility and we think about like curb cuts, for example, on sidewalks, like, that makes it better for so many people. It's not about someone in a wheelchair necessarily. It's about the person in the walker or the parent with the stroller or the person who's riding their bike. Like it is just a multitude better for all humans. And if we start to think about how inclusion is about how we make it better for each of us, not a specific population, we're going to move this work forward much quicker. Absolutely. Bringing in those principles of universal design and a human-centered design as well, and 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 putting that into the work that we do, rather than making assumptions about people. I want to swing back to the One Ability Network again, and and sort of I know you've mentioned a bunch of different organisations in amongst there, but how do you how do you kind of maintain the connections and keep them connected and keep them coming together and keep them kind of moving forward on your on your mission there? Yeah, great question. So one of the things that I think the pandemic gave us a bit of an opportunity to do was to look at how we had been doing things. And that was primarily in-person meeting, which one was challenging for people who are, you know, busy humans trying to do a whole bunch of things make. But also when we had members that were in different places across both the island, because we live on an island called Vancouver Island, across the province of British Columbia, and people across the country who wanted to be part of it, it created this opportunity to shift to doing virtual connections. And so we mm-hmm. instituted a monthly member forum on the last Friday of every month. And... It's an hour and a half and those that want to come, come. Same kind of with the National Parasport Collective as well. But that's been, those Friday monthly member forums have been massive in terms of just the conversation that's been generated, the consistency of members having a place to come and chat and connect, learn about what each other's doing, share their problems and challenges. We, We also do an annual education day, which again is for our members. Again, much broader. Michael, you joined us last week for yeah, that, so which wonderful. will be about four months old, but available for people to watch <laughs> yeah. on the website. We also really look at like, what are the, what is the, what do the members need? And we do an annual member survey to learn more about what they need, which both gives us some evaluation data about how the collective's doing, mm-hmm. but it also informs us about what do their members need? So like our members are the organizations that are serving people with disabilities. So what are their members challenged with in terms of, you know, with with some of the common barriers that they're facing and how can we as kind of that body that's bringing folks together help both the organizations navigate the barriers they're facing and their participants navigate those. So our website is a real hub for information and connection. We have an event calendar that each organization can post on that gives those participants kind of a one place to come and find out what's happening in our community around disability-related port programming. And we also instituted a thing called shared services, which 
is again, kind of looking at where some of our members have gaps. So marketing, for example, social media, bookkeeping, grant writing. Yeah. Wow. So just kind of exploring what some of those. Just really functional, functional things that. Yeah. And then basically just providing supports for that. So we either kind of contract someone that can then deliver services to a whole bunch of folks or we will directly kind of pair them with someone that can help that. We're just trying to like make their lives a little bit easier. Yeah. That's so interesting because I think that's the capacity, you talk about capacity, organizational capacities really limited for some of these smaller organizations that are operating locally on grant budgets and or volunteerism as well, but, but are wanting to make as big an impact as possible. So those, those solutions, even though they're not necessarily related to the, the work they do, it's, it's going to enable them to do the work by taking the load of some of that services that they need. Right. That's, that's such a, I think that's unique. I, I haven't, I haven't heard of an organization outside of say a government agency kind of playing that role across the sector, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty helpful. And I'm saying, I'm going to say we're early days in it, but mm. we'll have lots of learnings to share out to the broader community as we go forward. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned the big education day and yes, it was, it was amazing for me to sort of sit in on that and, and talk to the group as well a few days ago at the time of this recording, which is probably a few months ago by the time anyone's listening. So, but education is like really important here and, and obviously it's a key part of the offering. So how, I guess, what, what, is, what does that look like, I guess, for, for you or what, what, what's the plans around that education stuff? Cause you have your, your annual day and your, your, your meetings monthly, but is, is there anything on the horizon or is, is there a strategy there that you've got front of mind? Yeah, so we do a few things on training. As I mentioned earlier, there's so many resources out there and so many that mm. kind of people forget about as they move on with other things. And so we do try and kind of bring those back to the forefront, both through our newsletter to members, which is another thing that we do twice a month and kind of highlight training opportunities or if we see something new come mm. out, we're sharing it out through that. So I'm going to say those are sort of more like the virtual or e-learning type trainings but then there's a group kind of partially out of one ability but also through some of our health initiatives that train does training every spring for summer camp leaders and so we're very connected into that and actually you know offering intentional supports to ensure that as many of our members as possible and as many people who aren't part of our membership but are delivering programs where they might have a child with a disability show up that we're connecting them to really good training and resources and kind of sharing that out to the broader community. So we are also over the next year, very intentionally going to roll out more of an ongoing training piece, probably connected to some of our monthly member forms. And we just did one on social media actually last month. Mm -hmm. So just again, kind of looking at where those gaps are and where our members are already offering something that we can tie into, that we can share that resource and that richness together. So. Yeah, several pieces, I'm going to say, are not front. Yeah, yeah. No, I th- the, that last point you make around sort of using the existing knowledge and resources within the membership to help deliver capability to the other members, I think is hugely powerful. And one of the benefits to that kind of networked approach is you can share those resources and make people know about them as well as they get the benefit as well, which if you're operating in a silo or separately or independently, you you got to go find that yourself or struggle along. So huge benefit. With all of the kind of different members and different activities and programs and things that are going on across the networks and and this might apply to the 
to OneAbility, but also to the, the Parasport network as well. Is there anything that you do or is there, there are ways that you kind of, I guess, not so much quality control, but you kind of keep, keep the quality of the work up so that it's kind of, you know, best, best practice, industry standard, advancing, always advancing the way that the work is being done. Is there anything you do in that regard? Yeah, that's a good question. It's not like we've gone to like a stamp of approval. I would say mm. nationally, we've had a few more of those types of conversations. And with the National Parasport Collective, actually contributed, a group of us came together over the last year and created a, like a parasport education program to really like dive a little bit deeper to what was out there in terms of some of the e-learnings and the existing trainings. And so this was set up around an incredible resource called Becoming Para-Ready that was created in Canada and really looked at sort of 10 P's of creating a quality para-sport experience. And we use those 10 P's as a model and then built full learning for them. And so it's still kind of early days. We did yeah. what we called a pilot in the spring, which we offered over eight weeks. And so over two months, essentially, for two hours, I think each session was, and then with homework in between. And had a really incredible cohort of people go through that and got some great feedback on it. And now we're kind of iterating in a couple of different ways this fall to kind of test out, like, what is the optimal model? So we're doing kind of a short condensed for a shorter condensed version over more like a day and just exploring, like, what can that look like? Because we know that we need better quality programs. We need more programs, but no one in our systems really doing that. And I think <laughs> in Canada, Special Olympics does a really amazing job of it. And so that's kind of what we're like aspiring to be like, but we need, we need something on the parasite. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen the resources and had the privilege of, of speaking to the, to the group as well, working with Tim Canoval, leading that group. And yeah, some amazing work getting started there. And I think there's a huge opportunity for it to make a really big impact. And, and like I say, I think it's testing those models that work for the sport providers and the, the clubs and the programs and, and things involved, because sometimes it can be, you know, you go down a quality assurance program kind of route, and then it can be a bit too onerous for the, for the end user, which means you don't get impact, but if you go too light, you don't get the impact either. So there's this this, this sweet spot in the middle ground somewhere that, that I think will work, but yeah, good luck with that, that project. It's, it's looking and shaping up to be, yeah, really, really great. So, and, and necessary. I think these types of programs are really, are really important as long as you can, yeah, shape them right for the, for the people that you're looking to impact, which is the key thing there. How do you, how do you, this is, this might be a bit of an advice giving question, but, but maybe you've got some stories from, from within the networks as well. How do you ensure that participants stay involved long-term? So a lot of these sort of partners will be delivering projects. They might be on fixed terms. They might be kind of like, you know, seasonal, or they might be, you know, short 10-week programs types of things. So how do you, how do you make sure that people stay involved beyond either that initial engagement or that, that sort of fixed program period so that they can, yeah, get that lifelong sport experience as opposed to just the one-off? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's probably a question that is kind of better frame towards some of our members themselves who are the ones mm. to look programs. But one initiative we undertook, um, I'm going to say over the last year, I, think, I keep wanting to say post-COVID that it were not there. Yeah. So <laughs> but no. I was going to say out of the learning that COVID disproportionately impact folks with disabilities and yes. for youth with disabilities, they lost out on essentially two years of program opportunities, which meant 
means they lost out on two years of movement skill development, mm-hmm. two years of confidence development, mm-hmm. those types of areas. So thinking about how could we offer youth an opportunity to kind of get back into sport and physical activity, build their movement skills, build their sport experience, and create a really safe, lovely environment for them to be a part of. And so we, as one ability, got funding to create what we call ParaPlay, which is a multi-sport program. And it's a multi-sport program. We ended up, we've now got two age groups. We sort of started with an older age group of 15 to 25 and then we've added a age group of nine to 15 as well. And it's really introducing a multi-sport that we use our members to deliver. So our member organizations are integrated into the delivery and the kids get two to four sessions of each sport over a season. So fall, for example, or a spring session, and they get to just try those sports, have a really lovely experience with that. And then the connection to where they can go if they want to continue. Yeah. Sports, or they can come back and re-enroll in multi-sport experience at zero cost. Yeah. With help if they need other areas like transportation, all the equipment's provided. So we try and make, I'm going to say, an equity-based approach to deliver that mm. programming, meeting the youth with where they're at and what they need to be successful. Yeah, that's... That's such a good model. And I think whether it's mainstream sport or whether it's disability sport providers often don't think about how they're going to move participants through to the next step. They focus on just delivering their program and the focus is either deliver it and then say goodbye, or it's deliver it and try and retain them in the same activity rather than trying to move them through to the next step once they develop those skills or once they, you know, build that confidence or they once they you know, decide that they want to be competitive, you know, we're not very good at making those links and connections through to the next option because a lot of times we don't like relinquishing our participant because it's linked to funding and we've got a report on that, right? And so we, we, we hold them close, but that's, that doesn't serve the participant very well at the end of the day, particularly if they have aspirations or they do want to move on and develop or try another sport or, you know, go into competitive para sports. So I think those building those connections into the way the programs are designed at the front end is only going to serve the system as a whole. We talk about talent identification a lot in parasport that, you know, I've spent a lot of time in parasport and one of the limiting factors is kids don't get moved through a lot of times. They, yeah. they stay in the one place and that's, that's, that's not necessarily the best outcome for people. So yeah, that's really great information there. Geo- geographic location is kind of important as well. And given you've kind of got organizations all over the country, does, does that play a role in, in outcomes for your partners or in the work that, that you've, you've experienced over time? There's this, I want to say kind of openness and I think the pandemic helps with people Mm. just figuring out like, how do they connect with others in more meaningful ways? And so, yes, we have members kind of across the country, both with one ability, which is a community-based collective that, you know, expanded to incorporate more organizations on the island and more organizations across the province and then people that wanted to connect across the country because they like what we're doing. Mm. And then also with National Persport Collective, we have organizations from literally coast to coast to coast. And I think there's just this desire for learning from each other and not doing the same thing we've been doing. We are at a point in time when people want different and they're seeking Mm. different. So... There's, yeah, 
this desire to figure out sort of how we can work together to create different. Yeah, I think, yeah, understanding geography and, and how that, how location impacts on resources, capability, access, who's in the community, I think is really a really important consideration. Another consideration that's really important is resources and funding. And so I'm really interested to know, and I think you've mentioned a couple of things that, you know, you've, you've got a couple of partners and, and things like that that have helped set up one ability in particular, but what are the resources that you need? How are you funded for sustainability? And what are the other kind of resources that maybe not non-monetary things that, that go into making this work and be sustainable? Yeah, so I have referenced a few for OneAbility. OneAbility has been incredibly fortunate that our local community foundation, the Victoria Foundation, has been a long-standing partner. And very strategically, we brought them to the table early. We knew that they were interested in collective impacts. We were like, here's what we're trying to do. And they they had been setting up collectives for other kind of burning issues in the community. So they loved that we were already kind of self-organizing. And yeah. it's been an incredible relationship for several years. I volunteer back them on a few committees to help kind of like just that relationship and that reciprocity of yeah. how we show up in community together. So to me, that's an important part as well. And then we had a family that is an incredible contributor to our community. And when they learned about one ability, they were like, how do we help? And so they've also contributed financially and like to remain, remain anonymous, but I kind of call them our little benefactor. So I know that you yeah. know, things come up that we have an initiative that we want support on, then I can go to them and share what we're doing and likely have some success and support on that. And then with our program opportunities, as we became a charity, we could actually apply for different program grants that we'd had access to before. And so we've had some support through a national charity called Jumpstart to fund sport opportunities and has taken a lot of initiative in the last few years around parasport, has a strong relationship with the Canadian Paralympic Committee. So they've been funding our paraplay program and then our sort of sports governing body in, in BC via sport also funded program last year. So we've got some really great relationships mm -hmm. and because we kind of continue to share back and build those relationships, I think we're going to continue to have some good success on yeah, and I think that investment in the relationship and the partnership is so important. And and sometimes that brings in the money and sometimes that brings in other capabilities that you need. And sometimes it brings in just people or influence. And that's really important as well. If you're trying to get funding, maybe, you know, the, the partnerships you have can help help boost your chances in, in those conversations, whether it's government or, or locally or philanthropically and, and bringing the, you know, the mention that you bring in the Victoria Foundation in right at the front end, right at the start of the, the kind of planning and pulling it together, I think is really good advice. And so if anyone's watching, listening, that's looking to set something new up, think about those strategic partnerships early and don't come up with your concept struggle away and then try and bring people in to save you later, you know, it's going to save you time, energy and effort and, and help with sustainability if you do it up front. I think great advice. So I'm just checking our time. We might jump into the fun, the fun questions now that we always love to do at the, towards the end of our conversations with our guests. No, let's park that because there is a burning question that you have, right? There is something that we, we want to cover here. And this is, this is probably, I, I, I nearly just jumped over this. I'm sorry. <laughs> This is important. Forgive me, Al. Forgive me, Al. See, this this is where this is where my interview skills and my my absolute beginnerness of 
of running podcasts shows through because I nearly just jumped an important conversation, but we'll do it. We won't, we won't, uh, we won't let our listeners miss out on this. Um, you've, you've been involved in a lot over a long period of time that, you know, clearly, and we've only touched just the surface of, of, of some of the, the things that you've, you've had a really big influence on, but I'm keen to know what, what's kind of the biggest lessons that you've learned along the journey so far that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, I think there's a few. I think it's really important to recognize that, you know, we're all human in this. We're all figuring things out. We're all going to make mistakes and being really patient and empathetic in terms of how we show up for people to learn together and to fail together. I think everyone's going to have imposter moments. We are, we are like very imperfect creatures and there's a whole bunch of factors coming at all of us every day. And so how do you just kind of show up in the best way for you? who you are and how is your values really true in the work you're doing and in what you believe is possible. And if you put things out there in the world and surround yourself with really great people in community, I think anything is possible. I think it's important to be bold. You'll see behind me, I actually have a little bold puzzle piece from a project I did with yes. uh, America's Paralympic Committee a few years ago, where we built a whole leadership program for leaders across 14 of the America's Paralympic Committee members. And so being bold and just leaning into that every day and when in doubt, just sometimes you just have to jump and know that you might fall, but that people will also help catch you all the way. And mm. I think that we live in a world that is filled with shame and of blame. And in this world in particular, it's so, yeah. so important to not show up as shame and blame folks because that will just mm. shut the door. And we need every door open right now. We need to be mm. welcoming people in to these spaces and sharing with them how they can contribute to the world you believe is possible and make some of the really tough things less tough for them, really humanize some of these topics. And again, that curi- built curiosity in them in terms of what, what could be, who, who it would impact, what's, the, what's of value to them, and how do you kind of frame things in a way that support them to lean in and then support them with empathy and love. Yeah. It's just about being a good human, right? <laughs> it's just about being a good human. And I, that point you make about shame and, and I think it is, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard world to be in at the moment. If you're different, it's also a hard world to be in if you're advocating for difference and, you know, we're sort of seeing what's going on in particularly West, Western nations. And this has come up in a, in a couple of other interviews where we've had this, this whole kind of culture wars thing and this idea of canceling people with sort of, you know, so-called extreme views, or at least, you know divergent views, it makes it really difficult to have honest, open, constructive conversations and really erodes the trust that, that you need to change systems because people just, as you say, they shut the doors and they, they, they entrench the, the existing beliefs or the systems that they, they think should be in place rather than being open-minded and seeking change. And for us to change system, whether it's for greater inclusion of people with disability in sport or, or any, any people, we actually need those doors wide open. And, you know, all those things you mentioned, empathy, caring, you know, working together, all of those things are what enable change, good positive change to happen that reflects people's needs. So that's, that's super advice. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't skip over that. 
The burning questions are the most important one. I know, I know. That's why it's in here. <laughs> but we're, that's all right. People make mistakes, as you say. <laughs> but you were, we were there to catch each other. So that's good. <laughs> now for the fun stuff, our quick fire questions to round out our conversation today, which has been excellent. And I'm sure our listeners at home have got a huge amount of value from everything that you've shared with them. But first up, who is your most inspiring athlete right now? Scout Bassett. Scout is a US Paralympian in track and field. Mm -hmm. And she and I have gotten to do a couple of projects together. She just has this incredible story about being adopted out of an orphanage as a baby and raised in the US. And she just leans into like, how do, how do I like contribute to my community? And that's such a beautiful job of working with a number of charities in the US. She has an American doll, girl doll named, like modeled after her. Like, it's just like, she's just cool and she's just doing great work. And I just have such admiration for how she shows up in the world. That's just, yeah legendary person and we'll we'll try and grab some links to stories and, and info about about scouts so people can get to know her as well that's great who's your favorite sports team right now whatever team my daughter's on so i have a little 10 uh, year old human nice. right now she is completely obsessed with ice hockey and so I, I just show up and try and be a cheerer for her and support her dreams and aspirations in whatever that is. And she is definitely a multi-sport kid, but she seems very fixated on hockey. So we're nice. leaning into that, that I, I love women's sport in particular, mm -hmm. parasport. I just think there's such incredible stories behind each person's experience, particularly when you're navigating systems that weren't built for you and still showing up and doing awesome things in sport. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more with that. I know we, we've just started the sporting journey with our little five-year-old. We tried soccer this past winter season, but yeah, it's funny when, when your little ones start to get into, into the sporting kind of realm and you have to be the, the sideline parent. And for people like us who spend all our time yeah. in the sport, in the sport world, we know how we'd like to see things happen, but then you've got to remember community sport. It's, it's, it's all about the fun. Totally. Yeah. And it is really hard when you know as much as you know about sport, trying to make yeah. decisions and also like give them the autonomy for them to make decisions. That's right. That's right. What's, what's your greatest sporting achievement on or off the field? So it can be an off field one, but on the field as well. I did Ironman Canada in 2002, which for those of you that are unfamiliar with Ironman, it's a four kilometer swim, 180 K kilometer bike ride, and then a marathon to top off the day. And uh, I qualified for that about two months before, and it was definitely the hardest sporting event I've ever done, yeah. but one of the most rewarding and just the diversity of humans that compete in that race in terms of, I'm going to say that time it was more age diversity and body size diversity, mm -hmm. but we're, we're actively working with triathlon to try and make a more diverse sport in other ways as we go forward. So, yeah. I mean... Iron Man is just, you know, bonkers. It's, it's a bit, Iron Man's big over here as well in Australia. So, so most, most of our Australian listeners will, will, will fully understand what you've, what you've achieved there. So I would say that that is a, a big achievement to, to finish an Iron Man, to even qualify for an Iron Man is, is a big achievement and the finish one is, is just as big. So well done. Is there another one in the future though? 
You know, Ironman was, that was a great day. I did, I've done a lot of halves since. Yep. And I actually, so triathlon was kind of a bit of a, I'm going to say a resurgent story for me. I got into triathlon yeah. after surviving a brain tumor. And so oh, at 17, I had a brain tumor. At 18, I started to get into triathlon as like something I just like needed to do for me. Yeah. And then Ironman was amazing. And I coached and I was just in the, the triathlon space for many years and then kind of stepped back and over the last few years have done sprint triathlons. And that feels like a really great distance with everything else that's going on in my life. So I'm really yeah. happy to dig into some sprints that raise money for charities and I can just show up and have a good time for a couple hours. Yeah. Wow. Well, hey, look, I'm, I'm glad that you, you recovered from your from your experience as a young person and it just goes to show how how sport can be a real tool to i guess motivate and just help us you know improve ourselves and 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 find meaning in life and 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 motivate to to kind of you know get back into things and and for for whatever experience that we have so thanks for sharing that i appreciate it what's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning Right, exercise just really sets me up for the day. It gives me a bit of space and time to process to just navigate what's coming at me. As you described all the things I'm involved in, my life is really full. And so uh, it's sort of my only like alone time to just, just be. And I really value that. And then coffee. Yeah. Not coffee first, exercise, then coffee. Exercise, then coffee. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. All, 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 all my guests are putting me to shame with their morning routines. I'm nowhere near as motivated. I should, I should work on that. Final one. Now we've, we've got so many great bits of advice and tips and, and things from you already, but I'm going to ask one more time. Do you have a best inclusion tip that you can leave with our listeners? I do. This is one that I learned early in the days when we were starting that sport institute and I was kind of getting into the space. And it was just to start with yes, and then kind of figure out the details and how and get creative and curious about how to make whatever, whatever the thing is happen. But if we start with yes, we open that door and we create space for something to transpire. And I think that's really important advice right now. And sort of thinking yes. about how we create more inclusive spaces, how we create a world that leans into equity and that supports people to belong. Yeah, I, I think that's such a powerful but really simple mindset that people need to have and can have. So yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's a wonderful piece of advice for our listeners. So that brings us to the end. Andrea, thanks so much for joining me on the ISD podcast today. It's been a wonderful conversation and I want to give you the chance to let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you or follow your work or whether it's one ability or the parrot network or anything else that you're working on, Inclusion Incorporated, how can they connect with you? Awesome. Yeah. So OneAbility, the website is oneability.ca and we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and LinkedIn. And then Inclusion Incorporated, which we referenced a little bit throughout this as well on all the socials and inclusionincorporated.com. So we'd love to hear from folks. Awesome. We'll put all the links and social tags and whatnot in the show notes, along with, as usual, transcript from today's conversation and for listeners at home be sure to head over to inclusivesportdesign.com as well plenty more resources tools templates learning you name it it's there 
And you can also join the ISD community and subscribe to our mailing list to get free tips every week into your inbox. So make sure you do that. And the links will be in the show notes as well. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and whatever platform you're watching or listening on so you don't miss an episode. And finally, Andrea Carey, thank you so much for making inclusion happen and sharing all your wonderful work with us. I really appreciate you. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate you too. So thanks so much for having me. 